John Boy Media has a new teammate. It's iHeart Podcast. What does it mean? John Boy Media shows can now be found over at the Dan Patrick Show. That's right. How cool is that? Wake and Jake and Jimmy's three things have joined the iHeart Podcast and Dan Patrick Show family. And the best part, they'll still continue to be the same shows you know and love. If you couldn't tell, we're excited about this one. And thank you guys for listening. It is Tuesday, November the 22nd, 2022. Welcome to episode 64 of Tone of the Slap, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. It's David Cohn. It's James Smythe, back from Italy. It's myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Work. He's the guy really steering the ship here. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you listening out there. And we are taking your questions this week. It is a mailbag episode, kind of as a way of, of giving thanks to you, the listeners out there. Uh, we have some other topics like the Cy Young announcements happening late last week. Uh, Justin Verlander rumors as he is in the heat of free agency. Other player news to get to. Gentlemen, Thanksgiving week. What is the Thanksgiving dish that you cannot live without on this holiday? Oh, Thanksgiving dish. James, what do you say? I guess uh, classic stuffing. So I feel like it's a little underrated because, you know, you got the turkey is always the centerpiece. You got the mashed potatoes. But um, I'm going to give I'm going to throw a little love to stuffing. I am a dessert guy all the way. Uh, I'm a huge pumpkin pie fan. Desserts are big after the big turkey meal or whatever you have on Thanksgiving. So my grandmother, Cleo Cohn, used to make this red hot kind of red jello that was amazing it was spicy it was kind of red hot like Whoa. the red hot the old red hot candies it was a spicy red hot kind of a red jello for for a dessert it was fantastic it was a, a cone classic <laughs> that that she she started way back when uh, she since i was a kid so yeah desserts are, are on my on my list nice love a good pie apple pie can't go wrong with that one either pumpkin pie great time of year spicy jello do you eat that straight shot you know no it's you know it's it's um more like red you know if you ever had the red hot candies you know more 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 hot than uh you know kind of lights up your mouth a little bit than spicy but i guess you know spicy is appropriate too you think it's spicy is something different maybe but no it was it was it was unbelievably good you know off the top of your head you think spicy jello but that was great it was red hot red jello was amazing but do you put it on anything or it's uh, just it's a standalone dessert. It, it's kind of a standalone, although you can mix it in too, you know, with, right. with other other things. And uh, which which I used to, I used to put it right next to the turkey. Tell you the truth, I liked it so much. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, last couple of years, I never would have thought I'd say this, but for me, it is the actual bird. It's the turkey, but it has to be prepared one way. Smoked turkey is the only way to go. Um, I've become a big smoker. I've I've ha- I have two devices now. And I actually uh, smoke turkey is one of my favorite things to make. And I will do it even outside of Thanksgiving. So only way to eat turkey, you have to brine it correctly, locks in the moisture, gets the skin nice and and crispy and the way it's supposed to be. But smoked turkey, chef's kiss. So that's nice. my that's my I never would have thought I would say the actual turkey is my must have dish on, on this holiday. But but here we are. Um, all right. Before we get to some of your questions, some of the quick hits that we have this week, it is time, like it is every week at the start of each episode, for the opener. David, what do you have for us this week? 
Well, I'm going to throw some love to an old timer. You know, for you, you got to look this guy up. Rogers Hornsby had an unbelievable career, but he also had one of the best all time quotes for this time of year. And some of you probably heard it. And if you, if you hadn't, here it goes. It was sort of, you know, he was asked the question, you know, what do you do in the off season? You know, Rogers, you don't know, keep yourself busy. What do you do? And he says, no, I just, I sit and stare out the window and wait for spring training. And, you know, I love that quote. I always loved it. Kind of what I'm doing now, sitting, staring out the window, waiting for spring training, waiting for baseball season. But you think about the year that Aaron judge just had, we talk about war and how you calculate war, whether it's fan graphs or baseball reference, he had double digits, no matter which way you look at it, it was over 11 or certainly over 10 a cumulative war for Aaron judge Rogers Hornsby had, I think five years where he had double digit war, uh, his overall war ranking over his career. He started in 1915, went to 1937 over those 23 years. He had 127.3 career war, according to baseball reference, just remarkable. I think he hit 400 three or four times, like three times he batted over 400. So one of the great all-time ball players, old timer Rogers Hornsby with one of the great quotes. Sit around and stare out the window and wait for baseball season. I actually used that recently, like within the last month, because someone asked now that the season winded down and I can't remember where I was, but they're like, hey, what do you, you know, what do you do now that the off season's here? And I'm like, I stare at the window, wait for baseball. And it drew a laugh. So yeah, it made me, made me look funny. It's a great, it's a great quote, great line. And that's who he was 23 years. I mean, this guy was a, an amazing baseball player, mostly in St. Louis, one year with the Giants, Cubs a little bit, finished up with the St. Louis Browns, the old school Browns. So, yeah, he was a, a St. Louis legend, Rogers Hornsby. So a career 359 hitter. He had eight seasons hitting 370 or better. Uh, and uh, he actually had six seasons, according to baseball reference, with 10-plus war. And uh, that 127 war for his career, that's pretty much like two Hall of Fame careers in one a lot of times a general benchmark, 50, 60 career wars when you get into the Hall of Fame conversation. So uh, definitely probably uh, in, in the on the short list for the greatest second baseman of all time, Hall of Famer, two triple crowns, won a World Series in 1926, seven batting titles, uh, one of the uh, all time great players in the game. And he captures the essence of the baseball offseason for, for so many of us. A, a timeless quote there for Rogers Hornsby. Uh, awards were announced last week. Cy Young reaction, no surprise here. Justin Verlander, Sandy Alcantara, they're the unanimous winners in the American League and the National League, respectively. Not really much to say here, not much to react to. These were our picks. This is what was expected here with Verlander and Alcantara. So I guess I'll pose this question, guys. If there was one universal Cy Young award, do you give it to Verlander or Alcantara? Wow, classic quantity over quality kind of an argument, right? I mean, the quality of Verlander's numbers, a 1.75 ERA, really suggests that that's unbeatable. But the the, the quantity of, of Alcantara's, you know, uh, his numbers are just undeniable. He's an old schooler pitching seven, eight, nine innings more than anybody else, almost lapped the field in terms of innings pitch. So that is a, an interesting argument. Uh, I still go with Verlander because of the, the overall quality of his numbers. And he still had a pretty good, pretty good bulk in terms of, of his workload, but it, it's an interesting argument and probably closer than you think, because Sandy is just the, the premier horse in today's game. He established himself this year, I believe as the premier horse, the guy that just, you know, that, that just covers more innings than anybody else. And, and that's still an important stat, maybe even more so in today's game 
because of uh, you know the you know the the relievers don't go as deep in the games as they once did. I'm going to go with Sandy just because I feel like they were both so great, but Alcantara having the edge of over 50 extra innings gives him a little bit of a boost there. One freaky thing that I just see here on the uh, looking at their stats side by side, Verlander had a 1.75 ERA in 175 innings. So that almost that's pretty a cool match. Sandy a 2.28 ERA in 228 and two thirds innings. So 175, 175, 228, 228. So uh, now, now you'll, you'll, you won't be able to forget uh, their ERAs and inning totals now, but I think the edge for Sandy with the extra innings, the ERA about a half run higher, but I'll give him the edge because of the extra, the extra workload there. Yeah, there's there's no wrong way to go. I, this right. is a fun debate to have. I, I I'm going to go with Sandy Alcantara as well. I I think to your point, David. I think there's still a lot of quality in the quantity of Sandy Alcantara. Verlander put up terrific numbers. Uh, I like the horsepower. I'm you know I'm a, I'm a horsepower guy. You you get up there, you post, and you go deep uh, virtually every start. And you do it with the type of dominance that Sandy Alcantara did. I'm, I'm taking the quality in the quantity with Sandy Alcantara. Justin Verlander, though, is a free agent here. Uh, reports from The Athletic, from Ken Rosenthal, say that the Mets, they Zoomed with Justin Verlander last week. So Verlander's talking to teams. There's also that quote from Astros owner Jim Crane, where he was quoted in saying that Verlander is kind of looking for Max Scherzer money. So if if you are Verlander here, you take all emotions out of this, you're numb to any type of feeling here. Which team is the most appealing to you? You know, for me, and, you know, I'll defer to James here in a minute to kind of put, put things into context like he always does. Uh, if I'm the Los Angeles Dodgers, I'm really tempted to bring Verlander out there and, and put him right with with Clayton Kershaw. They've been so close. They've won one championship. They've had a decade worth of, of dominance in, in the, in the national league, but they just have fallen short. And this year, once again, it's like, yeah, the overall depth of their team is, is great. Um, you know, they ran away, ran away with the division, but they don't have that shut down starter. Walker Bueller was hurt. So they lost him that, that upper nineties power type pitcher. If I'm the Dodgers team, I'm Verlander. What a great place to pitch too. I'm thinking Los Angeles. I'm thinking the Dodgers. If I'm the Dodgers, I'm thinking Verlander because he could really fit perfectly at the top of their order. It's a great place to pitch. Dodger Dodger Stadium has always been a great place to pitch. There's something about the pitching mound there. Every pitcher who's ever pitched at Dodger Stadium loves the mound there. Going back to Sandy Koufax, great place to pitch, great uniform to wear. If I'm the Dodgers and I'm Verlander, I'm looking at each other pretty hard right now. The Dodgers would have to be at the top of my list either one of the New York teams too, but why not Houston? As long as the money's right. And as long as the, the offers are all in the same ballpark and everything, you have a good thing going with this resurgence of your career in Houston. You just won a championship, you're running it back with Dusty Baker. Go, go just stick around and, and try to repeat it again. James and I are two for two here on these takes. Cause the, for me, it's the Astros and it's a slam dunk. If they can provide the money you're looking for, for all the reasons James said, you have the terrific depth behind you, who are, are all of them are now proven in the highest moments 
of the sport in the in the postseason in the World Series. You know you can win. You know that the clubhouse has what it takes to win. You have Dusty Baker providing the leadership. You know you have the support of the organization doing things the way that it seems like everybody within the clubhouse wants to do these things. You've already achieved historic highs. Uh, just going back to this past season in 2022, the Astros are the one that have to be the most appealing. The Dodgers right there for sure. And I would put them second, but I think the Astros uh, uh, have such separation between being the first choice and the overall number two choice for, for Justin Verlander. But again, we don't know exactly what he's feeling. We don't know what he wants. So these are the reasons why I've taken the emotion out of it. Um, if you are on the other end of things, if you're the GM here of a respective team, uh, would you be comfortable giving, say, more than three years to Justin Verlander if that's what he was asking for? We know he's going to be 40. We know, uh, David, you've talked about Verlander being the Tom Brady of baseball. All that being said, how comfortable can a GM be before it starts to get uncomfortable? Well, we kind of know what he wants because Jim Crane, the owner, kind of leaked it. You know, he said he wants Scherzer numbers, and they they had talked and – Maybe Jim Crane thought he could sign Verlander quickly after the season, after winning the World Series. But Verlander's saying, um, you know, by the way, I deserve to be at the top of the pay scale. You know, I've earned it. He's earned his way back. He went on a one-year deal with an opt-out at $25 million a year. The top of the pay scale is not quite double that, but almost double that. Scherzer's at 43. So if you're Verlander, he's absolutely right to ask for that kind of a deal, a two-year deal minimum at the top of the pay scale, wherever that is around $40 million a year. So does, does Houston do that? I don't know that they do that. Houston's got really big, good depth in their pitching rotation, including a couple of youngsters that, that we saw just a glimpse of in the postseason that are on the way. So I'm not sure they need a left fielder. Houston needs a left fielder and a first baseman. I'm not sure they're willing to, to spend that kind of money on Verlander because the rotation is so deep team like the Dodgers really need somebody like Verlander. Um, both New York teams could too as well, depending on where DeGrom shakes down. So, yeah, I, I, I think Verlander's right to ask for it. Do you, does he get three guaranteed years? Probably not. Two years at the top of this pay scale, I think, is a, with, with an option for a third year is probably where it's going to land. If he can get three years, more power to him. But he's absolutely correct to ask for that type of a deal based on his career and last year, most recent example of, of where he stands as the Cy Young Award winner. So, yes, I think he deserves to be there. He deserves to ask for that kind of contract. With his comeback and the level that he pitched at and the bulk of the innings and, and carrying his velocity and everything all the way through the postseason, I don't think teams would blink at all at a two-year deal at, you know, high-end money like that, 40-plus or, you know, uh, Scherzer plus a dollar or whatever it is. I think if – if he really does want a third year, I think you'd have to slide the money down a little bit per year and which could knock down the AAV. But on a two-year deal, I think the sky's the limit as far as, um, as far as a, an average annual value on a contract. But as far as a third year, that's when you might have to, might have to be an either or kind of situation. Well, I think two years is automatic. I think if he wants a Scherzer type deal and, you just said a moments ago, Scherzer's older. Verlander has, you know, was won a Cy Young at age 39. Can he ask for like a four-year deal? Would you give him f four years if that's what he's asking? 
you know, there and again, you're playing with the average annual value. Uh, you know, it, it, what shakes down there? Do you, is, is Verlander just looking to kind of get the most guaranteed money overall? Or does he want to, to take a chance and go two years or a year by year to try to maximize uh, the average annual value? I think that that's where it comes down. Uh, his work ethic is, you know, is, is top shelf. The way he takes care of himself, he's proved it. He's one of those guys that's highly motivated. When I talked to him earlier this year, He's got the 4,000 strikeout club in sights. That's, that's four or five years away, probably. He, he's well well past 3,000 strikeouts. He's already going straight to the Hall of Fame, probably first ballot when he's done, but he's not done by any means. He wants to go as long as he can. He loves it. He loves the work. He's in fantastic shape. There's no reason why he can't. He's sort of a, bit, sort of a unicorn, too, in his style. His window's at seven feet, his release point, You know how, how over the top he is makes him unique and a little bit of an outlier that hitters don't see a lot of those seven foot release point windows coming at you. So um, that, that, that gives him to me sort of a built-in advantage stylistically. He is kind of unique, a little bit of a unicorn in terms of his style. The, The thing that separates him from the Scherzer deal, he won the Cy Young, he pitched better than Scherzer did, but Scherzer's three year deal was for his age 37, 38 and 39 seasons. Verlander just finished his age 39 season. So any deal would be 40, 41, 42, 43. So I feel like that kind of, that changes the calculus a little bit. All right. One of the reasons why the Dodgers are being linked to pretty much any big free agent is because they did a lot of work over the last week. David, you and I were talking about it last episode between the deadline to non-tender players, uh, the Dodgers shed close to $100 million in payroll, and no one was more notable than Cody Bellinger being non-tendered. Former MVP is now a free agent. He's free to sign with any team, and he's fallen pretty hard at the plate since 2019 when he captured that MVP award. He had shoulder surgery. A lot of people think that's you know that could be the place where you pinpoint to what's gone wrong with him with the bat still offers a lot of good things especially in the field he can run well but what can other teams do that the Dodgers didn't in terms of recovering the offensive value with Cody Bellinger well well you hit the nail on the head it really comes down to what his medicals look like what was that what what was the deal with that surgery how far away from full strength is he can he gain back that strength has he lost some bat speed I think the the other intriguing part with with him too is stylistically he's all over the map with with the way he his batting stances are the his style of hitting um, he's on the plate one time he's off the plate he stands straight up I mean he's a prime candidate for a really strong hitting coach like a Kevin Long or somebody of that ilk to really get to and and kind of narrow down his focus on mechanics because he is really. Kind of, as I said, uh, there's a there's a wide variety of batting stances that he's featured over the last couple of years. So, yeah, that that's a hitting coach's dream and a nightmare at the same time. Trying to get him right, trying to get him to buy in as a key. Uh, he, he's kind of headstrong. He's a former MVP or MVP caliber player that kind of believes in himself, but at the same time, he needs some help. He he definitely needs to get stronger, and he needs to to narrow down his focus on his batting stance and his mechanics and. You know, you get finding that finding that buy-in is going to be tough. You better have a strong coaching staff, strong batting coach, hitting coach that can get a hold of him and get him to buy in and listen to what what uh, what he's preaching. 
I guess just it's a matter of patience too, knowing that it's in there. You have the rookie of the year from 2017, the MVP in 2019. He's not that far removed from being one of the best young players in the game. How much is, is the shoulder is still an issue. I think it might just come down to who's willing to give him some time. He has a pretty high floor as it is because he has such great value defensively running the bases, does a lot of other things. Well, so he doesn't even have to get back to being an MVP to be a valuable player for you. So it might just be a matter of leaving him the time to, to work through things and, and just give him a, a, a regular position, regular playing time where he can kind of work through, build back up and just ha- take the time to build up. I just thought about this because there were reports that he wants to just sign a one-year deal. He's 27. If he puts up a good offensive season, he could command a multi-year deal. I think they're saying that he could already command a multi-year deal as a non-tendered free agent. I'm like, what is like the richest free agent deal for a player who was non-tendered? Is <laughs> usually they're just one-year contracts. It's a good question. Absolutely. I think he's smart to go for one year to try to rebuild value. Scott Boros is his agent and he, he thinks the same way. And he Boros uh, makes a strong case that it, it really is physically related his problems that he's going to have a full off season. It gets strong again. So how committed he is he to the weight room and to his rehab and getting strong again, getting that shoulder, right. And if that is the real issue and then secondarily um, as, as James said, right, rightly so that, he could command a multi-year deal because of his floor being so high. And that's a, the, the best way to put it because of his defense, but his age is on his side. And I, I guarantee he's going to want to go one year. That's the reason why the Dodgers obviously non-tendered him is because you're getting up near 20 million a year, you know, 18, 19, 20 million a year. He was going to, he was going to command an arbitration, even with the struggles offensively, um, his body of work, you know, commands that kind of a salary. So I'll be interested to see maybe a one-year deal with incentives and try to rebuild his value and then go from there. More Tone of the Slab is straight ahead, but I want to thank our friends at Vincero for sponsoring today's episode. If you're not familiar with Vincero yet, they make exceptionally crafted and stylish watches at affordable prices. You can finally own a high-quality and lasting timepiece without going broke. So if you're looking for the perfect holiday gift to help elevate your style or someone you love, get 20% off and free shipping site-wide with this exclusive link, vincerocollective.com forward slash slab. Vincero designs everything in-house. They source their own materials. They produce in small batches. If you're worried that someone won't like the gift, and why would you hear? Whether you need to return or swap, there's no problem. Vincero's five-year guarantee and 365-day free return policy has it covered. Whether it's a gift for yourself, we like those, or for someone in your life, add Vincero to the top of your wish list. Don't wait, or it'll be too late. Get 20% off and free shipping site-wide with our exclusive link, VinceroCollective.com forward slash slab. Support our show and check them out at V-I-N-C-E-R-O collective.com forward slash slab. Look good, feel good, and save big this holiday season with Vincero. All right, let's get to the mailbag portion of this episode. And we've done a couple of these in the past. They've always turned out so well. Your questions are incredible. Uh, James and I are going to take five questions each. James uh, tackled the Twitter feed. I went through Instagram and (laughs) right out of the 
cave. Apologize if we don't get to your questions because a lot of them were good. We can only pick five each year. James, uh, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so with free agency being uh, being the topic now early in the offseason, here's one from uh, Andrew Campbell. Uh, he says, Coney, have you ever been part of any of those free agency pitch meetings, whether on behalf of the Yankees, Mets, Boston, Toronto, KC? Did you do or say anything of note to lure said free agents to this team successfully? Oh, um, you know, I think the one thing that I did do is um, I kind of pushed for the Knobloch trade. It wasn't a free agent, uh, but it was, uh, you know, after we got knocked out in Cleveland in 97, you know, I thought, you know, we really lacked a leadoff hitter and we needed a second baseman at that point. You know, Mariano Duncan was our second baseman in, in 96. Uh, we, you know, we, we play today, we win today. That's it. That was Mariano Duncan. So you know, he was a veteran at that point, kind of past his prime. So we needed somebody like a Knobloch. So I really sort of, uh, and I think it made the, the headlines in the paper because I sort of uh, vocally, you know, had showed support for Knobloch and trying to make, trying to bring him to New York. He was with the twins at that point. So not really a free agency sort of a thing, but certainly I think I had an input there with the front office and George at that point, George Steinbrenner was uh, he, he liked players on his team that were veteran players to talk to him and give him ideas and, use him as a sounding board. He wanted to be involved in the process. That's all he ever wanted. George was a coach. So I, you know, I recognize that. So I talked to him all the time about things like this and talked to him about, about Knobloch and it came true. And then, you know, we got him at second base and, you know, regardless of his problems towards the end of his career with, with his throwing issues, he was a big part of the 98 team and the 99 team and really played well and scored a bunch of runs at the top of the order and was a great leadoff hitter for the, for those, those Yankee teams from 98 on. I never heard never heard that story there, Coney. I never heard of that either. Chuck Knobloch was my favorite player on those teams, just because I never, I never saw uh, the between pitches routine that a batter had quite like his until I saw Chuck Knobloch. So that stood out to me. I don't know why he, he was the leadoff hitter, wore white batting gloves too. It wasn't really uh, all that common, like everything Snow White. Uh, I don't know, gravitated toward Chuck Knobloch during those dynastic years. Coney, you weren't too bad either. Um, my question from Instagram comes from ad underscore rock and we're going to keep with the free agency theme here. He said, Sands, Verlander, and DeGrom, which starting pitcher would you target this offseason via free agent or trade? Wow. Who do we have? Do we have a list, James? What do you think? Can we let's, let's throw out some ideas here? Um, it's hard to sorry. say on the trade market. Obviously, you know, uh, maybe might look at the Marlins. Some of their pitching might might be available by a trade. Could be. Um, yeah. Right. So, I mean, we were talking. So what they said outside of Verlander and DeGrom. Yeah. Just okay. I guess um, they'd command big money. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's Carlos Rodon. Um, that's probably the next uh, biggest fish. Uh, Chris, Chris Bassett, Bassett there, friend yeah. of the show. Andrew Heaney, um, Kershaw. Um, Rodon's in a class by himself. You're right. The power lefty, he's kind of a cut above. You know, Kershaw will probably stay with the Dodgers. Yeah. Uh, if you want to, you know, third or four starters, you're right. Bassett's great. Walker's great for the Mets. Kind of, you know, eat up a bunch of innings and be, be reliable, but not a high-velocity dominant type starter, but certainly, uh, you know, reliable. You know, to me, I, I, I'm looking at Miami again. I keep thinking, you know, we we heard about 
rumors of the Yankees and the Marlins matching up. And you have Kim Ng down there who used to work for the Yankees, work with Brian Cashman. We heard rumors that Glaber Torres and maybe Peraza might have been involved in a Pablo Lopez trade potentially. It would be interesting to see if something like that gets revisited this offseason. The Marlins need batters. They have a wealth of pitching. So I think everybody's zeroing in on the Marlins and their pitching. Uh, Sandy Alcantara is not going to be available <laughs> a couple of years ago. But if you ever had a chance to trade for him before he became who he was, you're, you're kicking yourself down. But yeah, that, there's some pitching in Miami and they need some hitting. So that seems to be the natural place to go for trades. Uh, as James said, Carlos Rodon's in a class by himself, upper 90s fastball, left-handed power pitcher coming off a great year. He's a cut above. So he's going to command a big deal wherever he goes, I think. And as long as you you can get past his medicals, because he does have a little bit of an injury history, but he certainly uh, had a great year last year, once again, with the Giants. All right, let's uh, let's jump into the next one here. So this is uh, from our pals at Talking Yanks. How would Coney have pitched to Aaron Judge if he got the chance to face him? Ooh. It's it's a classic up and in up and in hard end soft away. You know when you get down to pitching philosophies, there's things that have been around over a hundred years that still work, and it, it really does make him aware of in. Try to get ahead of him with fastballs up and in that maybe he'll foul off, or push him off the plate a little bit to make him aware of in, and that maybe opens up the outside part of the plate. Now you're not going to get him to chase all that much. That's, that's something that he's gotten much better at over the, over the years. And that's the thing that I've kind of marveled at watching Aaron judge progressively get better in his approach at home plate and work the counts to three and two and lay off a lot of those breaking balls down and off the plate, but you still have to go there. But the only way you can make those breaking balls down or right on the black or off or in the strike zone down and away, the only way you make those successful is if you make them aware of in. So it really does come down to up and in, down and away. And the up and in part is hard, and the down and away part is soft. Now, one thing that he did have trouble with last year was off-speed pitches. And by off-speed pitches, I mean change-ups. He's done really well at laying off of sliders down and away, but the change-up down and in, righty to righty, change-up down and in gave him some trouble. And that's a hard pitch to lay off of because you see fastballs in. So the strategy is to pitch him hard in. If you've got a change-up that you can throw Aaron Judge, from a right-handed pitcher and throw it on the inner half of the plate or fade it down and in. That's a very effective way to pitch any right-handed power hitter. And so that's the one pitch that kind of Aaron judge struggled at times with last year was that right on right change up down and in. Well, actually, actually some good, good Intel here. Thought you were going to go the route of uh, Carl Erskine, the great Brooklyn Dodger pitcher. When he was asked how to pitch to Stan usual, he said, I just throw him my best pitch and then go back up third base. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So we received a lot of questions that were wondering about your routines between starts, pitching routines in general, but there was one guy who kind of embodied all those questions into one post. So I'm going to take it from Dario underscore Guarda, who said he's reading uh, Harvey Dorfman's The Mental Game of Baseball, A Guide to Peak Performance. And he just wants to ask, you know, what, what was your routine to prepare for a game? What did you do on days between starts? both mentally and physically? And how much time did you spend studying opposing hitters that you're going to face? Uh, I did. I watched, you know, the one thing I did more of back then in the, in the pre-information age, shall we call it, or pre-analytics age, was really watch similar pitchers to myself that had similar stuff, how they went about it. 
and sometimes that could really help. How how did uh, Greg Maddox or how did Kevin Brown or how did somebody of my era pitch, you know, Jose Canseco or Mark McGuire? What pitches did they throw them or Tony Gwynn for that matter? How did Greg Maddox get Tony Gwynn out? Well, none of us got Tony Gwynn out very often to tell you the truth, but that was the thing I was more interested in was seeing how other pitchers pitched hitters that I had trouble with and try to find, find a secret there. Um, that, that was the, the one thing I thought more than anything else. And the second thing that I learned early on was amnesia is one of the best things you can have as a pitcher amnesia. That's what's why the old school scouts used to say, you know what? The best ball players are the dumbest ones. The ones that don't think too much. Don't think you think you stink, just pitch and forget about the bad stuff. And, you know, it sounds like an old cliche, but it really is true. And, and I learned that lesson early on in my career where I, I got banged around. I gave up 10 runs in my first start as a Met back in 1987. And it was awful. I mean, I, I just thought the world was going to end. I thought I was going to get sent out to AAA the next day. And then in my next start, I was throwing some of the same exact pitches and getting away with it. Hitters were popping them up, fouling them back. And that the light bulb effect went on for me. It's sort of like not every hanging slider you throw gets hit for a home run. Not every mistake you make is going to get tattered. Sometimes you get away with those pitches. Sometimes the hitters get themselves out. Don't take yourself so seriously that you feel like you have to be perfect with every pitch and you have to sort of thread the needle and, and get maximum location with every pitch. Stay aggressive. Pound the strike zone. Go after hitters. And forget about it if you make a mistake and they give up a home run because you might make that same pitch the next time up and he's going to pop it up or foul it back. And that was the catfish, catfish hunter story. Catfish Hunter, the great legendary pitcher for the Yankees, Hall of Famer, talked about, you know, if he ever gave up a home run on a fastball to a hitter the first time up, you know what the hitter got the next time up? The same pitch right there. And if he hit another home run the third time up, you know what he got? The same pitch. That was Catfish Hunter's theory of, of pitching, saying you can't do it. You can't do it twice. You can't do it three times. That was lucky. You, you know, it's, it's just the law of averages are on my side. And that, that really is sort of a mentality for pitching that you have to have. And we see it so many times, a big game, a starting pitcher early gives up a home run in the first inning and it chases him, chases him out of the strike zone. It's human nature. I think that's the ultimate lesson for any pitcher to learn is nope. It's the other way around. Forget about that. Have amnesia, keep pounding the strike zone and keep going after them because they may foul it off. They don't pound every mistake you make. So you mentioned, you know, learning from similar types of pitchers, Kevin Brown, Greg Maddox, when you pitch. So this one's from Colin Joseph. What pitcher or pitchers remind you the most of yourself today? Well, um, you know, I guess I I probably towards the end of my, my Yankee years threw more breaking balls uh, than I did early in my career with the Mets and threw more fastballs. So, I was, I guess I was kind of a progressive pitcher in terms of wanting to throw more breaking balls. That's what we see nowadays. Analytics has shown us that, that uh, you should throw more breaking balls, more sliders. I certainly did that before I knew the, knew the numbers behind it. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, I guess probably the one guy would be like a, a Zach Grinky was, was similar to my style and then became more of a finesse guy later in his career. Kind of what I did with my Yankee years. You know, people don't remember with the Mets. I threw pretty hard. I threw in the mid nineties when I was with the Mets, you know, I was throwing 95, sometimes plus 96 on, on the, on the jugs gun uh, when I was with the Mets. So I had a really good foul, one of the better fastballs in the national league. And then 
progressively as I lost velocity, when I came to the Yankees, I became more of a finesse pitcher. So Zach Greinke's probably that guy, you know, for me of, of the modern day pitchers or somebody who's evolved quite like that. And he's probably doing a lot better than I have. I think, you know, he's still to this day, um, effective. I kind of fell on my face at the end of my career. It was time for me to go. You know, it was time for me to get out of the game. Greinke's like, there's still people that want him around. He's still, still can get it done. And I, I guarantee you, he'll end up pitching again next year. I know the Royals run him back as well. So I admire his career. Not only his personal story, everything he's been through battling his demons, but what type of a guy he is, but just stylistically how he's evolved over the years. And he would be the guy. All right. This one deals with pitching, but also your second chapter in life, David. It's from uh, TMK2130. What is at least one thing that you did not know about being a broadcaster before you became one? And is it harder to pitch a complete game or call one? Wow. You know, it's, uh, it's apples and oranges. It really is. I think um, the, the thing about broadcasting that I didn't have a clue about was just the rhythm and timing of things. I think every former player or anybody's got great content, got content. You know, you, you have good things to say, you have good stories to tell, but I, I think that it's sort of the, the rhythm and the timing of the game on, on when to talk and when to shut up when to allow your play-by-play guy to, to do his job and stay out of his way. I think that's the sort of thing that I had no clue about. And it took a while to learn that part of, part of the, the job. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, talking over plays, talking over pitches, talking over the game can be really annoying to, to a lot of people who are watching there. They want to see the game. They certainly want to hear what you have to say, but at the right time, at the proper time. So, you know, that, that would be the thing for me was just the rhythm and the timing, when to shut up, television you don't have to talk all the time you're not paid by the word and then also uh you know working in tandem with your play-by-play guy you know a sense of rhythm back and forth and allowing him to do his job and staying out of his way and how many times have you seen a big home run and the and the analyst starts screaming oh whoa wow you're, you're doing that right over right over your play-by-play guy's call he's trying to call a home run and you're groaning in the background it just sounds awful when you play it back you know on, on the rerun so that that was the hardest part to learn for me but Pitching physically, obviously, there's nothing like pitching. There's nothing like pitching a complete game. You know, when I call, when I when I'm broadcasting a complete game, I go home, put my head on my pillow, and go to sleep. When I pitched a complete game, I didn't sleep that night. You know, I'm replaying the game in my mind. So physically, you're recovering, and mentally, you're just emotionally so much more invested. You know, it's cool. I mean, it's more than just the the actual title of the accomplishment but like obviously you could pitch a perfect game in baseball as a pitcher i don't believe that you can have a perfect broadcast uh, especially on tv because there are so many other people involved in the project but i just don't i don't think it's ever attained like it's great that you're going to always continue to strive for that but there's always something that's going to keep you from having that that perfect broadcast but wouldn't it be cool if we did get paid by the word That'd be really nice. You could fill it up, right? Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to hit the mute button for sure. <laughs> yeah. James, what do you have? Oh, right. I'm next. Um, Ray Blay asks, the Yankees are focused on relievers who can induce weak contact, and it seems to have paid off so far. But if the shift ban is meant to limit strategic positioning and have more batted balls turn into hits, is that the best way to construct a bullpen anymore? Great question. These are these are some of the questions that front offices are dealing with right now. Absolutely. What, what's the impact of the banning of the shift going to have the potential running game? 
how much more athletic do you need to be on the field, but up the middle, especially on the infield? Yeah, these are all valid questions. Keeping the ball out of play, you would think, becomes even more valuable because of the ban of the shift. You know, strikeout type pitchers, missing bats, you would think would be more valuable. But the Yankees have, have done a good job of, of just working with what the strengths are of the pitcher. And if that's Clay Holmes is the prime example coming over, just throw your sinker all the time. That's your highest quality pitch. Every pitch is measured now. The spin rate, the break, there's sort of a, a stuff plus category now that rates your pitch. How good is your pitch compared to everybody else? How good is your pitch? How far away from you for, or from average are you? The last thing you want to be as a pitcher now is have average, average movement, average velocity, average anything on your pitches. That's what most analysts, most pitching analysts are pushing pitchers away from, identifying your strengths, trying to get to that strength more often. So if, if it's a sinker, it's still going to be a sinker. Clay Holmes is going to be a closer. He's going to put the ball in play more often. There's going to be some ground balls. So you're going to need some athletic infielders to cover that ground. But yes, it, it is something that front offices are trying to figure out right now. And we'll know more next year as we get more input back from, from the ships. And it'll be interesting to see what, what teams do. Will they bring an outfielder in and play him in short right field and go with a, a two outfielder alignment? You know, what are some of the designs defensively that we're going to see next year? Just because you ban the shift doesn't mean your shortstop can't play almost up the middle. You know, he just has to be just slightly to the left of second base. So, you know, there's still going to be some maneuvering and some positioning. And and the key to me is, is there going to be some outfields? You know, if, if Anthony Rizzo's batting, do you bring the left fielder over and play him in short right field? And do you just split the two other outfielders and play with a two outfield uh, rotation or not? That's the part I want to see and see how that plays out. Or that question got me thinking to another one that involves the Yankees middle infield. So M underscore red 13 asks very directly, Glaber Torres, Oswald Peraza, Oswaldo Cabrera, Anthony Volpe, who is starting in the Bronx on opening day? Wow. That, that is the question to be asked, right? I mean, it's going to come down to spring training. The, the, the jobs are open for the taking and, and they've made that perfectly clear that th those jobs are for the taking, but you have to take it. And sometimes it's hard to spring training. You know, I would say you would think that Peraza has a leg up because he's a true shortstop and defensively he moves so well that, but that uh, he, you know, if he shows up in spring training, the job's for his to take. Uh, it, we'll, we'll see what happens with the trade trade uh, situation over, over the, over the winter. The Yankees have a surplus of, of middle infielders. So that there's, that's the spot everybody's looking at potentially that there might be a deal done from, from the middle infielders. Now we'll say that DJ LeMayhew's injury kind of, kind of uh, muddies up the water, so to speak a little bit. What is that foot injury? Can he recover? Is it going to need surgery? What's the deal? We don't know. So that, that that's a bit of a, a monkey wrench thrown in the middle of everything. Cause DJ could play second base every day, or he could play third base every day. So what, what is his status that, that, that really impacts everything in my mind, but nonetheless, with all that being said, anything's possible. But if, if you're asking me right now on this day, I think it's 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 Peraza's to lose right now. I think Anthony Volpe might be the future, but I'm not sure if they're quite ready to pull that trigger based on a hot spring training. And he's only had maybe 60 at-bats in AAA, just a cup of coffee in AAA last year at the end. They probably want to see Anthony Volpe in AAA, you know, have, have some numbers, do well there. But Peraza's the guy. It's, it's there for the taking. So if he has a good spring, I would be surprised that he's not the opening day shortstop. All right. Last one from Twitter. And sorry for all the other good questions that we couldn't get to off of there. But uh, our last one from Twitter by uh, this one comes from Teresa Andriani. 
for Coney, if you had to pick one teammate to have on your side in a bar fight, who would it be? Oh, that's so easy. So I easy. Know. It's Daryl Strawberry. And I, I go back <laughs> to the uh, Armando Benitez, uh, you know, uh, big brawl when he, when he drilled Tino Martinez in 1998, right in the back. And I think I, most Yankee fans remember that brawl. I'll just go to YouTube if you want to see it again, but Strawberry's the guy. He always, Strawberry was always the guy. I was with him with the Mets for six years or five years, had those Yankee years together as well. He's the guy. I mean, there's just no, I can tell you story after story, both on and off the field that I'll keep to myself. There was a couple barroom situations where I was glad straw was there to get us out of there and break things up and with the Mets back in the day. So yeah, it's, it's straw. Daryl strawberry raised his hands to Mike Tyson. <laughs> I mean, it was a, for a photo op, but he still did it. Yes. Yeah. But we saw Mike quite a bit around the Mets back then. He was a big Mets fan, you know, uh, with strawberry and doc Gooden back in the day, back in the eighties. Our last one here from the Instagram feed. John Smoltz is on record of, it comes from Dan Henyon, by the way. Thank you, Dan. Uh, John Smoltz is on record saying that the loss in 96 derailed the Braves dynasty. He said it changed the locker room. Why did not, uh, rather, why didn't that happen to the Yankees after the loss in 97? Uh, we made some changes. We went on got Chuck Knobloch. They laid off and play second base for one. Um I, I think then, you know, the pieces were still there. We were all in our prime. Paul O'Neill was in his prime. Bernie Williams was in his prime. Derek Jeter was just coming into his prime. He was still a young player at that point. Set 97 was his second full year. Now he's coming into his third year, clearly established himself. Uh, the Scott Brocious trade certainly solidified third base. So Knobloch and Brocious changed the whole dynamic for the Yankees, as far as I'm concerned. And that, that set us up to really take off. And, and move forward everything else was kind of in place so uh, with the Braves I'm not sure it's hard to say why they got derailed I think the when I think of the Braves I go back to 1992 when I was with the Blue Jays and we beat the Braves in 92 and then I was with the Yankees in 96 and I was with the Yankees in 99 and we could always match up with their pitching we could match up with Glavin and Maddox in, in big games because we had pitchers that could miss bats and Maddox and Glavin were, were kind of put the ball in play guys and sometimes in postseason, the random variance could, could bite you when balls are put in play and, and ground balls find holes, so to speak. So I think that kind of hurt them. But the one thing that was the big difference, and I say this all the time, whenever I see Smoltz or Maddox and Glavin, if they had Mariano Rivera, it would have been a different story. It was always the back end of the ball game for them. In 92, it was Jeff Reardon who gave up a big home run to Ed Sprague in the World Series that changed the dynamic of that one. We all know about Jim Leritz and Mark Wallers. And it would happen in that situation. And then in 99, it was a straight sweep. At that point, we could really match up. We had El Duque uh, Hernandez to help us match up with their tremendous rotation. The Braves had Hall of Famers in their rotation, but we had El Duque. We had Andy Pettit. We, you know, we had David Wells. We had some guys that can match up with them in the rotation. And we had Mariano, which was the X factor at the end of the game. So it was really about the closer to me. Another example of why Mariano's the, the GOAT for sure. Um, thank you all for sending in these questions. Again, we uh, apologize deeply if we did not get to yours. They were really uh, terrific, both in, in Twitter and Instagram. We will be doing this again, obviously. It's about the third or fourth time we've done it already. We're not going to stop. So be on the lookout for our next mailbag episode. This week in pitching history, James, what do you have for us? All right, gang. Uh, November 25th, 1981, 41 years ago, 
Friday. Raleigh Fingers of the Brewers wins American League MVP, barely beating Ricky Henderson. It was the split season. Teams only played 105, 110 games because of the strike in the middle of the season. It was a split campaign. Uh, Raleigh Fingers, of all people, a relief pitcher winning MVP. It's one of only four times that that's happened. Jim Constante with the 1950 Phillies, Fingers in 81, Willie Hernandez in 1984, Dennis Eckersley in 1992. We love relief pitchers. They're, they're pitchers too. We love them. I, I just can't wrap my head around a relief pitcher winning MVP, and I don't think we're ever going to see anything like that again. I remember the insane season that Eric Gagne had about 20 years ago now, and there was the conversation of him being the MVP. If he couldn't win it doing what he did, I believe it was 2003, and I'm it with wasn't. you, James. I don't think we're seeing a reliever win MVP anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. That's going to be very difficult in the in the modern analysis of things nowadays. It, it just almost disallows that kind of uh, lack of quantity, or even the a lot of people think that the, just the save rule in and of, of itself nowadays is a little bit overrated because of the modern usage of bullpens and the high leverage. When probability added, probably is a, more, a better way to look at things nowadays in terms of. Did you come in in the seventh or eighth inning and face the top of the order and down one run? Or did you get a save in the ninth inning with a three-run lead in the bottom of the order? So they, you have to sort of qualify what type of what you know what type of action was, was called for and how the pitcher was used in the bullpen. And you know, it, it's, they're used so much differently now. It's hard, it's hard to gauge, you know, exactly uh, what impact they have other than modern analytics, which is, you know, win probability added in my mind. All right, time for three up, three down as we close out the show here this Thanksgiving week. Uh, James, why don't you lead us off here? I'll, I'll lead us off. So today, or we're recording on Monday, the Baseball Writers Association of America put out the Hall of Fame ballot for this coming winter. 28 players uh, to be voted on, and the most notable of the new first ballot guys, and the guy I think has maybe the only one that has a real good shot to, to get in someday is Carlos Beltran. Um, but most notable uh, is that we're going to have some holdovers from last year. Alex Rodriguez is still there. Scott Rowland is still there. Andrew Jones, Todd Helton. So hall of fame season, always something to keep an eye on uh, during the long cold winter without baseball. So we'll be keeping an eye on, on the hall of fame uh, ballot counting as, as they come in. And uh, Carlos Beltran, a, a notable first ballot possibility this year. Which, you know, we should, you know, we should bring up as well. In December, there's another vote on the, the Veterans Committee. I don't think they call it the Veterans Committee anymore. I'm not exactly what it's called, technically speaking. But uh, the, the two big fish are on, are on the vote uh, in December. And that's going to be Bonds and Clemens. And that's going to probably once and for all decide whether those guys get in or not yeah. and what, what, where steroids fits into the whole debate of things and Clemens and bonds. I mean, seven Cy Young, seven MVPs. I mean, I mean put the steroids uh, in a box over here on the side, just their numbers are the, the, some of the greatest of all time, arguably the two greatest players of all time, the greatest pitcher and the greatest hitter that are marred with steroid allegations. So that's going to be solved too in December. That's a big vote coming up as far as the, who's on the ballot and, and the holdovers to, for me, Scott Rowland, you know, the, the strategy of a lot of the writers, because they're reduced or they're limited to 10 votes, 
per ballot means that they can't vote for some players that they want to vote for in any particular year. So there's some strategy involved. And yeah, I think there's got to be a better way, you know, to do the hall of fame voting. If I were the hall of fame, I would go to somebody like Tom Tango who works for MLB. He's a great legendary uh, sabermetrician and maybe get some guys like that in the room and come up with a better voting system to, to get guys in the hall of fame. But nonetheless, Todd Helton's great. Billy Wagner is a great closer. You look at their numbers, uh, Andrew Jones in center field, maybe one of the best defensive center fielders of all time. There's some guys on there that, that are going to move up because guys have fallen off the ballot. So now writers who, who didn't vote for them now might be drawn to vote for them now. Roland's probably at the top of that list. I think Roland is, uh, this is year six for him on the ballot, and you do, you do need 75% of the vote to get in. Uh, I'm hoping this is the year because uh, he's, probably got the best shot of anyone to get it. If he doesn't get it, it might be a shutout by the writers. So Helton in his five years on the ballot, 10%, 17%, 35, 53, up to 63. So now maybe he can make that, make another double digit jump and get in this year. Yeah. Rooting for Roland. This, this could be a year if, you know, if he doesn't get it this year, um, be disappointing. Uh, Beltron, K-Rod, the, two new additions. I'd be surprised if any of the other new additions make it to, to year two, maybe John Lackey, maybe he gets the 5% that that's needed to stay on the ballot. But I think Beltran and Francisco Rodriguez are the, uh, the only two moving forward out of the, the newcomers that were released uh, on Monday, the day that we were recording this. And yeah, that, that the vote on bonds and Clemens is coming up like less than two weeks away. So we're going to yes. find out rather quickly. Um, all right. Three up, three down. David was, was that part of your three up, three down? Kind of was. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the, the whole Hall of Fame thing, I mm -hmm. think, is is obviously very interesting. I think baseball, more than any other sport, has a higher bar. You know, it's been around longer than the other sports. It's just so hard to get in. That's the ultimate question people ask me all the time. Do you think you're a Hall of Famer? My particular case, I was one and done. I think I got 21 votes or something that was a little less than 5%, 35 or 4%, I think I got, and I'm off the ballot. Um you know, it's, it's, it just feels like to me that it's not about comparing players to player. Well, you know, how do you compare to John Smoltz or how do you compare to the best pitchers of your time? Um, Mike Mussina, for instance, you know, how's your career match against well, It's not really about comparing to other guys. To me, the argument is, are enough guys getting in? That's the question for me. Is the bar too high? And maybe in, in my generation in the eighties and the nineties, that maybe there aren't enough starting pitchers that got in. That would be the argument I would make that, that we're underrepresented, especially compared to other sports, but that's what makes the hall of fame special. They, they kept it that way. The writers feel pretty strongly as far as that goes. The, I know the current members of the hall of fame feel very strongly about that. They want to protect, uh, you know, the, their, their hall of fame. So yeah, to me, it's not about, Hey, yeah, you know, you're better than that guy or what about how your numbers compare to this guy, even though that's part of it. To me, it's about, you know, are we representing enough players? from my particular era, really historically speaking, and moving forward, are enough players getting in? I think that's a valid, valid question. It's true, and uh, it's, a, it's an absolute fact that there are far fewer players on a rate basis getting in from the 80s and 90s and the more recent era than in years past. All right, three up, three down for me to close this out. Um, I'm going to give some love to an artist, something that we – don't usually do here, but uh, to Daniel Jacob Horine, who is the artist behind um, Pop Fly Pop Shop, if you're unfamiliar with it, he 
basically puts out one of a kind drawings of comic book covers that it relates to a baseball player or something that happened uh, in the sport over the course of history, a certain event, but mainly he just highlights certain players and the shop for each new comic book is open for one week and then he moves on. So you're, you're on, you're on the clock here in terms of acting and buying and getting some really cool memorabilia. Um, he had one back in August after the passing of, of Vin Scully and just goes to show like how much work he puts into this. I just received this last week. So this is the Vin Scully uh, comic book cover. I'm going to hang on my wall back there. It's a limited edition number 411 of 751. Um, if you are watching the YouTube stream, you can see it. But I, I, if you're listening to the podcast only in audio form, please check out the YouTube stream because this work is terrific. So um, it just has a, a number of his memorable quotes talking about Vince Scully and you 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 can just see the design the the scheme of of Dodger Stadium with the way the display is on here so it's like a vintage a, movie poster it's almost amazing at, yeah. little well, little details like this like it's you know he has the cost of the comic book 67 cents he you know Finn was the broadcaster for 67 seasons little details like that really make all of this stuff pop and I believe this week he's doing something with Lou Gehrig uh, with the iron horse. And I, I think he has Lou Gehrig as like a centaur. So it, it's really cool. Definitely go check it out again. Pop fly uh, pop shop on, on social media. He has a great Instagram account. Um, that's one of his many terrific pieces of work. Maybe we can get him to do one of no David. We'll see. I'm, I'm plugging him in right now on your on your recommendation. I'm going to Instagram right now. I'm going to plug him in. That that is great. I mean, the post that looks like a. I'm a big fan of vintage movie posters. You yeah, know? that that's got that look to it that makes great art. It looks it's great on awesome. the wall. Yeah. I'm going to put it back there. My so my girlfriend is a her desk is adjacent in our home here. We have this home setup, so like my, my desk is facing her desk. She's staring at this back wall. She wants to know how many more. Uh, dead baseball players I'm going to put up on the wall. <laughs> well, I got I got a bunch of them here, but I'm uh, you know going to continue to add to uh, my collection. And if you are a big uh, collector of cool baseball stuff, that's really unique. Yeah, Pop Fly Pop Shop is a uh, is definitely a place to go. Awesome. Um, anything else, guys? This week, as we get ready for Thanksgiving, I think we've covered it all. Yeah, quiet, quiet week. Enjoy Thanksgiving, everybody, and uh, stay tuned. Winter meetings a couple of weeks away in December, mm -hmm. maybe a little action then once the general managers get together again. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Aaron Judge, you kind of wonder, well, you know, what's, he, what's he doing this Thanksgiving? What's he thinking about? And who's he talking to? Good question, right? That's right. Something that we we're all uh, pondering as we stare out the window and wait for spring training. <laughs> That's going to do it for this uh, episode, guys. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you out there. Thank you so much for your questions on this mailbag episode this week. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, for our terrific producer, Dan Wark, this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media.